Hello and welcome to BB On The Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen, and whether you're listening via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify, it's great to have you on board. Over the past 50 years, the composer Edward Gregson has made a huge contribution to the brass band repertoire. Although his works for band only account for around 25% of his compositions, it's a world about which Edward has always been very passionate. Now he feels the time has come for brass bands to think seriously about what they want to be. Coming up, he chats about what he calls the obsession with contesting and how it's time to rebalance our thinking in order to ensure that bands can rightly be taken seriously by the wider musical world. On that point, Edward began by giving his reaction to the news that the brass and wind band category has been omitted in the latest call for submissions from the Ivers Composer Awards. Well, I was obviously disappointed, Mark, because it, it, it signals um, a deviation from the, the previous policy of, of the Ivers Academy. I think it's a pity on more than one level because it kind of, in a sense, devalues uh, writers, composers, writing for the medium of brass bands and wind bands, and I think that's a great shame. But it also takes it out of the public eye a lot more. I mean, it's all very well saying if you have a work for brass band or wind band, you can submit it in one of the categories you've just uh, laid out. But actually, there's no certainty that any of those compositions will get through to be shortlisted and nominated. In which case, the whole thing about brass band and wind band composition will simply uh, disappear off the end of the planet, as it were, <laughs> which, which, which is a pity. Uh, however, having said all of that, as you quite rightly um, put in your article in last week's British Bandsman, there are reasons for that, and maybe we should talk about those as well. Yes, well, Gary Carpenter, the chair of the Ivers Composer Awards Committee, uh, did respond and he said that following a review, a number of changes were made in order to be more inclusive. And he said that the organisation is really supportive of all musical genres and that it actively welcomes entries from composers writing for wind or brass bands into these broader categories. But do you feel that it is important that there retains a distinct category for wind and brass band and that it still has that identity? Yes, I do. But I think one of Gary's other points, which is an important one and which we must discuss as part of uh, this whole area, is that at the last awards, there were only three submissions uh, in this category. Now, that is extremely worrying on more than one level, but it's, it's worrying in the sense that my understanding is the other categories have substantial um, submissions. And indeed, in in the area of chamber and orchestral and probably choral as well, you know, there are as many as 40, 50, 60 submissions. So you can understand the view of the academy saying, well, hold on a minute. If we're only having three submissions, what is the point? And indeed they withdrew, do you remember, they didn't award anything in the category in 19. You can understand why. And that therefore brings us into the whole area of why were there only three submissions? And on that topic then, what does the band world need to do to get its own house in order? Is it that we need to be stimulating writing for brass band? Do bands need to be thinking about linking up perhaps more composer and association schemes? Or looking to events like the, uh, the Royal Northern College of Music Festival of Brass in which Paul Heinmarsh is the uh, driving force? Yes, I think, I think it's a big discussion and I think it's something that Brass Bands England, uh, Kenny Crookston has started that debate. And I do hope that all bands of what, whatever sections they are will engage with that debate because one of the questions I posed, I think, when I, I, you asked me to quote in, in, in the last issue was that I think bands have to rethink what it is they want to be. <laughs> in the 21st century. I mean, do they want to be an insular looking organization which is primarily concerned with contesting? Contesting is an area which actually no one in the outside musical world really understands at all. <laughs> they, and I've asked 
quite a number of musician friends what what their impression is of that and they really don't understand the idea um, of um, uh, 18 bands playing one piece for eight hours and an audience listening to just one piece for 18 hours in the excitement that one band will be declared the winner rather like a wrestling contest or a or a, or a world cup football or whatever it might be and you know there is something about that which is which is rather strange and i do accept the fact that it's steeped in history and that the reasons for contests becoming so popular and so important is 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 a perfectly reasonable one in that the players themselves the performers are amateur it is part of their enjoyment if you like let's call it a hobby just like you choose if you want to go out and join a chess club or a karate club and that's how you want to spend your monday evenings that's fine if you play in a brass band you choose to do that therefore what's going to keep you interested um, in being a player in a brass band well it is the very thing of course of social interaction and musical interaction with your your colleagues and friends sitting around rehearsing but there has to be an end goal and the two end goals because no one just wants to rehearse forever and have no public uh, platform for that. So the two end goals are concerts and contests. What I feel has become out of kilt, it's not been a recent story, it's been going over the last 20, 30 years perhaps, but what, what, what I think has, has taken over is this obsession with contesting to the detriment of bands giving th real thought about concerts and, and how they will attract a new audience. There's been a lot of discussion about audiences getting older and older. And, you know, the argument that some conductors and bands give about rather conservative concert planning and giving is that, oh, well, that's what the audience wants. Well, I don't quite accept that if actually what, what one of the things that bands should and want to do is to attract new and younger audiences, then they're not really, those audiences are not going to be so interested um, in listening to the kind of traditional fare of stand-up soloists playing Napoli uh, or, or, or a brass band um, con contest uh, test piece just thrown in and the rest being sort of arrangements of light stuff. I don't think, knowing young generation, I think they're actually quite interested in new music. So I may be wrong about that, but I think that, that what we have to do, therefore, is rebalance our thinking. And I think that's a debate that's for the brass bands themselves to have um, if we want to change the perception that the broader musical world uh, has of our much-loved much medium. This matter of repertoire is an interesting one, and it's not an issue that's exclusive to brass bands either. If we look to the world of symphony orchestras in normal times in a typical season, you'll see your Beethoven and Brahms symphonies programmed regularly, but it's often more difficult to get some other composers' voices heard. As far as the band world is concerned, though, do you think it's about perhaps being brave? And if there is a new piece being included in a programme, it's about how that is presented to the audience, perhaps? Absolutely. I think that's very important. And something you mentioned earlier, Mark, which um, I'll come back to, is this composer and association schemes. I, d I do think that if bands have a composer working with them, and as part of that relationship, taking on board trust, if I can put it that way, um, trust from both sides, that it's a learning experience, perhaps for the band's taking on a new musical language, which at first they may find difficult, but then they, they get more used to. And for the composer and association, something that's very important and dear to my heart, is the idea of giving responsibility and indeed the possibilities of young composers at the beginning of their careers becoming involved with a medium that is not only exciting, I mean, for goodness sake, why is it I've spent 50 years of my life and I'm still writing for the medium when actually I'm, I've been writing for lots of other things and I keep coming back to brass band? It is because it's an exciting medium. But I do think that having a composer in association scheme, which I hope is something Brass Bands England might think about taking on with the Arts Council of England 
as a possible funding partner. <clears throat> I think that would give both the composer, the young composer, um, and, and the bands themselves a, a, lever, a leverage, if you like, uh, into thinking about the kind of repertoire, as you rightly said, that they present to the public. On things like composer and association schemes, we see from time to time, particularly that some of the higher profile bands will often make use of and benefit from one of those schemes for bands perhaps heading down the levels slightly who may think that it isn't for them or perhaps haven't considered the idea before, there is still benefit to be had though from it, isn't it? It's a, a mutually beneficial relationship as a, a composer benefits from working with this band and, and having music showcased, but for the band itself, well, it's, it's gaining from all this creativity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, one had to, to give um, composers credit for the kind of level of shall we say, technical difficulty that they write for. I mean, it won't take any intelligent composer very long to assess what the standard of the group is. So it's not about writing challenging music in terms of, let's call it pyrotechnics at the moment, which is where some of the European own choice pieces have been going in the last 10 years, you know, with, with more and more kind of what I would call crazy, crazy kind of showing off of, of either technical ability or, shall we say, um, musical theatrics on the stage. But that, that, might, that might come under another heading. But, yeah, I think that composers can still take on the technical ability of the band and still give bands something which is going to be meaningful in terms of the music itself and therefore would provide a, a mutual kind of um, benefit. And also, when it comes to a piece that that composer might write for that band, and it might be a third section band, for example, when they actually give that concept and pres present that new work to an audience, no matter what the audience is, to have the composer there and actually introduce it to the audience and say, look, this is what I was thinking of when I was writing this, blah, blah, blah. It would really, I think, as, as most orchestras now recognize, the, the personal touch for audiences is very important. They want to see what a composer looks like and what they say um, as much as hearing their music. So I think that's part of our duty as composers, not to make ourselves um, sort of non-available in ivory towers, but actually to come out and show that we're human beings just like anybody else. We just happen to do this strange thing about writing music <laughs> as opposed to going and doing some other work. I suppose looking at it from a practical perspective, there are professional and semi-professional and amateur musical ensembles to be found all over the country and beyond. But one of the benefits about brass bands is that although there aren't quite as many as there used to be, there are still bands uh, located all over the country. In other words, you'll have groups that would yes. play your music. Yes, absolutely. And can I say, I mean, I live, I live in a little hamlet close to Macclesfield, close to Manchester, as it were, my local band is the Bonington Brass Band, who happen to be a very good band. You know, they're a first section band. They, 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 they actually, and I went recently and did a, a, a session with them. They're lovely people. They're great people. And they do that because they're enthusiastic. You know, when, when I took them through a couple of pieces of mine, I mean, my language wasn't exactly alien to them at all. Of course not. There may be other composers whose language is more alien to them because they haven't heard a lot of contemporary music. So let me take a good example of a band that I think is at the forefront of, of leading in this area, Tredega Band, South Wales. It's a town band, happens to be an extremely good one, happens to have a very progressive and, and a highly talented conductor, and they are not afraid of taking on new ideas like they did, for example, with the Gavin uh, Higgins Ballet, with Rombert Ballet, with a, with a new piece they commissioned from Paul McGee to do uh, at the European. Really, this is language that is tough, that is contemporary language and is not easy on first hearing. But, you know, there's a band who's not afraid of kind of jumping over the barriers, if I can put it that way, and doing something different. And my own experience, you know, I was in Composer in Association with Black Dyke uh, for a year in 16, as was Philip Wilby and Peter Graham in three years. I mean, I found that very helpful, not only because I was, uh, in the usual way, I was asked to write one major piece, and that was the Cornet Concerto I wrote for um, 
for Richard Marshall, but also it gave me the opportunity to take on board doing some seminars at three of the uh, UK conservatoires to students, composition students, who had never written for band before, and some of them never really heard a serious brass band play. And that was very helpful. I learned a lot from talking to student composers about the perceptions they had about brass bands. And the perception wasn't always good, I have to say. But like a lot of things, once they'd started to hear some of the recordings I played, to hear a, a really good brass band and hear some of the repertoire, the more contemporary repertoire, their opinions really changed quite rapidly. And indeed, some of those composers, I'm pleased to say, who had never written before for bands, as a result of these seminars and then the, the, the specific conservatoire bands taking on rehearsals of the pieces. They all, a lot of them wrote pieces for brass band. And you know, that, that's in a sense, that's the future of bands. The future of bands relies on a constant refreshment of its repertoire. At the moment, most of the productive new music comes through the contesting sphere. And like, you know, a hundred years ago, of course, some of the most, some of the best music that's been written for brass band has been within the contest sphere so you know i'm not knocking that and as someone who is just about to embark on, on a five country commission obviously which has been postponed from this year i mean i, I it would be wrong of me to criticize contesting per se so i'm not doing that because i think it's a valuable form of new repertoire but i do think that, that there's a big gap now between what happens at contests and what happens at concerts do you notice a significant difference in approach from composers, from bands, from audiences, as you look from country to country. I'm thinking at this point, as uh, we look to Norway, for example, which is a younger scene than we have in Britain, but perhaps in some respects isn't shackled by tradition in quite the same way. Yeah, absolutely right. No, absolutely right. Having been to Norway quite a lot and having having had a lot of um, experiences there on different levels, including, uh, uh, including adjudicating um, their National Wind Band Festival, which is, a, like their Brass Band Festival, extremely high level. Yeah, I think it's an advantage not to have this, this burden of tradition. And um, as we know anyway, so many youngsters in Norway learn a brass or wind instrument at school they all have that opportunity. Sadly, something which has become less possible in our country, and that's a great shame on, on successive governments that they've reduced uh, levels of funding on music education. But um, I think that the fact that so many young people play in Norway to such a high standard, it's, it's really what I said earlier, Mark, in, 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 in the context of hearing the kind of music, they're not put off by hearing really quite contemporary pieces. In fact, they use them quite a lot in their own choices. So yeah, I, I, think, that I think we can learn a lot from Norway. We've always thought in the past, say going back 30 or 40 years, that, that um, European mainland bands could learn a lot from us because we were the, it's a bit like football and all the other sports we've now been overtaken in, that we were the ones who invented it so everybody can learn from us. Well, that's not true anymore in sports, certainly, and it's, it's probably not true in brass banding either. I think that, I think that we can learn an awful lot about um, taking your Norwegian example about how brass banding is organized in that country and how actually every individual in every band has to be a member um, of the Norwegian Band Federation. And that's why they can do so many really innovative things because their funding levels are so high. Let's now turn the spotlight on to you, Eddie. You've enjoyed this very successful, extensive and varied career and you've written for everything from orchestras to choirs, music for film, TV, your concerti, as well as your works for band, of course. But how did you become involved in writing for Brass Band? First of all, um, I played in a brass band when I was a teenager. I was brought up in, in the Salvation Army. Uh, my parents were ministers or what they call officers in the Salvation Army. 
And of course, the Salvation Army, particularly then, maybe not so much now, then had a, a, a really big tradition of, of music making, very high standards with their choirs and brass bands. As a teenager, I played in a, in a brass band, so it was kind of partially in my blood. The fact that I then went to study at the Royal Academy and actually didn't write any band music at all during that time, but actually a piece that I, I did write during that time, which was my concertante for piano and brass band, was featured in a concert with the International Staff Band of the Salvation Army at their um, 75th anniversary concert in London at the Royal Festival Hall. And as a result of that, Geoffrey Brand, who was in the audience, heard this piece and uh, I had a phone call from him a few days later because he'd just taken over, apart from other things, he'd taken over R. Smith, the, the, uh, the brass band music publisher, and he said, I'm looking for a young composer. I'm looking for a young composer to, to refresh the repertoire to put new blood into, in, into, uh, our, into our music. Would you be willing to, to write under contract for us? And as a young composer, then not having uh, much basis of an income when I was leaving uh, college, um, of course I said yes. And, and therefore that, all of that music that I wrote between say 1969, starting with pieces like Prelude for an Occasion, all the way through to Connotations, 1977. There were a lot, there were a lot of music I wrote for Brass Band. It was nearly all published by R. Smith at that point. So that's how I got into it at that stage. And then after Connotations, I, my thought was that I'd been doing it for about eight years and I really wanted to, to do other things. So largely after that, I started to write for other mediums um but I, I i have always as you know returned to writing for brass band albeit every seven years or so among your brass band works there are indeed test pieces which have been commissions perhaps for particular contests how do you enjoy the challenge that comes with that sort of brief when there will be certain expectations on the difficulty of the piece. It might need to tick certain boxes regarding the challenge to bands and to soloists. It maybe has to be an approximate length and so on. Do you enjoy having those parameters put upon you? I think a professional composer will always respond to a particular commission professionally. Because, for example, an orchestra, if an orchestra says, um, asks me, would you write a piece? We're doing this concert in a year's time and we want a new work to open the concert, like an overture, 10 minute maximum, blah, blah, blah. Of course, that's what you'll do. It's no good writing a 30 minute symphony because the orchestra will say, that's not what we wanted. We won't be able to do it. So, so you write the piece. Now, of course, with a professional orchestra, you're quite right. With a professional orchestra, you are not going to be hampered at all by anything to do with technical levels. So they can play anything. Getting back to your point about a brass band test piece, um, I've, never, I've never liked the term ticking boxes, but I, I obviously know what you mean. There are indeed certain expectations. One is length. And on the whole, I think you have to be responsible about that. Having said that, sometimes when you're inventing material, you, you some, somehow have to say what you want to say in a certain time, but it's probably two minutes longer. I don't know. Sometimes that's happened to us all. Um, but in terms of expectations, in terms of technical levels, well, you know that it's got to, if it's a top section piece, it's got to be difficult technically. But my point about that is it doesn't always have to be te technically very demanding, though that's important. It has to be musically demanding as well. Um, and that's sometimes where people forget that actually a piece may not look ridiculously difficult technically, but musically it's very challenging. So um, I like to think that when I'm commissioned to write a piece, as I have done with this latest piece, The World Rejoicing, first of all, I think I, I want to write a piece of music. And I want to write a piece of music that is challenging musically and technically in terms of what it's been commissioned for, the purpose, but also because I want the bands themselves to be able to enjoy rehearsing it. And I also want the audiences to respond to it in a way which they don't think after they've heard it twice, God, I never want to hear that piece again. So, you, for example, you, it would not be a good idea to set the Harrison Bertelton's Grimethorpe Aria uh, as, as the test piece at the two major competitions in England. I wouldn't suggest that at all. Um, but, but on the other hand, very important, don't, don't write down, as it were, to your audience or to your players. 
they're much more able to take on board all kinds of things than one might suspect. So don't write down and just think, oh, let's write a little tuneful, a tuneful piece, which, you know, blah, blah, blah. You, you've got to satisfy yourself as, as a writer before you satisfy anybody else. Just on the world rejoicing, you would have been hoping to hear this piece showcased quite a lot over the coming months, and it will be, but it might just happen a little further down the line. How much are you looking forward to, when it's safely possible, hearing that piece being performed across Europe? Well, I am very, very much looking forward to it because it's, even for me, it's a unique commission. I've I've never had a commission before that's been a five-partner commission. And and for the for the kind of you know leading European countries to to have taken part in this commission is is for me uh, I'm very humbled by that because um, um, I hope that obviously I can fulfil their expectations and I am looking forward to it. and of course as we all know uh, COVID nineteen has uh, has uh, influenced our lives in a in a way which none of us would have expected so it is disappointing because actually you know I wrote that piece over a year ago even now. Well, in, if it happens in Norway, so Norway as the premiere, which it might do in February 21, uh, it, will now, it, will, it will still be nearly two years old since I wrote it. So I'm, I'm very frustrated at not having heard it yet. <laughs> the time will come. The time will come. Yeah. Now we come, though, to your piece of the podcast. And this is an opportunity to share a work that means a great deal in one way or another. So, Eddie, tell me a little bit about why you've chosen this particular piece. Well, Mark, I chose, I chose Connotations because it was a, a kind of seminal work for me. Uh, as I said earlier in this conversation, uh, it came at the end of a very productive period of writing for me. So I had, as it were, honed my, my skills and my experience in writing for brass bands over eight years. And Connotations came at the end of that period. And I couldn't have written Connotations well, in, for example, the year I left the academy, it wouldn't have been possible. I wouldn't have had that experience and, and maturity as a composer. And although I was still only 32 when that piece was premiered, for me it was very important because it kind of it, it, it made a it made a statement about what kind of music I wanted to write for the for the brass band medium. And I think also from what other people have said, it was also a seminal moment in that it kind of laid out some new new kind of expectations of what a, what a piece might be. It brought a kind of a slightly more modern language to, to brass bands. The use of percussion, obviously, in it was reasonably innovative, although there had been other examples of percussion being used quite extensively. For example, Gary Howard's Fireworks. Uh, but I was treating the percussion section as I would have done had I been writing an orchestral piece. And I think that was the difference. So for me, it was an integrated piece. And also because at the age of 32, it was the first time I'd written a major piece like that for a brass band. And, you know, the, the, kind, of, um, the, the, the kind of thrill of, of having the, uh, the Royal Albert Hall premieres with what in those days was a full Albert Hall. I mean, packed to the rafters. Uh, that was, yes, it was an experience I still remember with great fondness and also because... Uh, and this this is strange in a way. It was the year that Black Dyke won their hat trick on that piece. And the strange thing, why I said it was strange, is that uh, seven years later, Corey Band did the same with Dancers and Arias. That was the piece that they also won their hat trick of Royal Albert Hall win. So it's 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 rather strange that that should happen. But I think that's the reason why I've chosen Connotations. I'm still very fond of the piece. I'm very pleased that it's still playing, being played quite a lot all, all over the place. And I think for me that, that says that at least it seems it's to, to have achieved its place within the brass band repertoire. So without any further ado, let's listen to Connotations from the pen of Edward Gregson. <laughs> Thank you. 
Grainthorpe Colliery Band, conducted by Elgar Howarth, performing connotations from the album The History of Brass Band Music, The Modern Era. That was today's piece of the podcast, as chosen by my guest and its composer, Edward Gregson. Eddie, connotations date from the 1970s. Then you have the likes of your middle period, as it were, dances and arias of men and mountains and the trumpets of the angels, right through to more recent works, Rococo Variations, the Symphony in Two Movements and of Distant Memories. How would you say your writing for bands has evolved? That's quite a tricky question in a way, um, and I'll tell you why. Some of, sometimes when I've written for Brass Band, I, I ha- and of course of distant memories is a very good example of that, <laughs> I have, as it were, softened my style, yes, so that it makes it more approachable, it's less dissonant, it's perhaps more tuneful, it's more within a kind of acceptance of a traditional view of what repertoire is. But um, that's not always, for a composer, the most satisfying thing to do. So it is interesting that if you look at the two pieces you mentioned last, my Symphony in Two Movements and Of Distant Memories, they're like chalk and cheese. One is a piece which I wrote for a specific occasion because it was 100 years um, since the first original test piece for brass bands, Percy Fletcher's uh, Labour and Love, 1913. I wrote Of Distant Memories, and I spoke to Philip Morris about this at, 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 the, uh, at the Nationals, and he was very taken with the idea of me writing a piece which would, in some ways, look back and celebrate those composers of that, of that peer, early period, including people like Holston Elgar, for example. And so the piece is a kind of what I call a style conversion. It's not really my style, and indeed it uses a language which in the harmony, for example, it uses quite a lot of diminished sevenths. Sorry to get technical. Some, a lot of your listeners will understand, however, what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I would never use successive diminished sevenths in a pattern, like Liszt does in his piano music, or Beethoven sometimes does, actually. It's, it's a very old cliche. It's very effective in some ways. But it's, it's, and I used it in that piece. So I would call that piece a style conversion. That's not to say that I I didn't imbue into it some of my own personality. I hope I did. And of course, it is very popular. It's much, and getting back to the point in hand, it's much more popular than my Symphony in Two Movements, which is in quite a kind of, not exactly an acerbic language, but it's it's certainly more dissonant. It's certainly more symphonic. um, And in many ways, and indeed it wasn't used as a test piece uh, in the end, it was indeed uh, commissioned originally as a, as a concert piece for the National Youth Bands of Great Britain and Wales. So it was always intended to be a concert piece anyway. And therefore, I was free, and particularly because I was writing it for young people, I wanted to challenge them musically as well as technically. I suppose you could say that my, my views about how, the progression of how, how do I see my writing for brass bands having progressed, I see them having gone on a, on a similar journey to my other music, but perhaps of, at times I've used a more softened language in the same way as a dear friend of mine, John McCabe, wrote Cloud Catcher Fells. After he had written Images, if you remember that piece, it caused a lot of controversy. Um, brass bands just didn't like it, it's language, it's acerbity, whatever. And um, he was quite hurt by that in a way, but he, he actually responded to it by writing Cloud Catcher Fells because he realised that brass bands perhaps needed to have a slightly different language and style from him. And he wrote that, of course, it's now become one of the standards of the repertoire. Quite rightly, it's a great piece. And so it's a lesson for all of us as composers, really, I think, that sometimes things which we consider to be our most treasured things are not necessarily the pieces that become, in inverted commas, popular. If I can quote Ravel, Bolero, or Rachmaninoff, his C-sharp minor prelude, these are both pieces that those composers became to hate. They absolutely hated having ever written them because those were the only pieces that some people wanted to hear of them. And so our artistic ambitions, if I can put it that way, as writers, 
are not always aligned to the way in which they're perceived by the general public, the musical public, and indeed performers, whether they be brass bands or orchestras. So I, I, think, I, I think I've tried to be true to myself in all that time. But if you ask me, what am I most proud of? It would be the symphony in two movements. I think that you said that your brass band writing accounts for about 25% of your compositions. As someone who's written for a wide variety of combinations of voices and instrumentations, what would you say to young or emerging composers, perhaps listening to this podcast, they might be coming from the, the banding world or a banding background, should they just be writing for every type of combo they can get their hands on, as it were? Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing I, I always say when I used to teach composition was to any, any young composer, expand your horizons. So just because you have success in one genre, it might be writing choral music, for example, not, not necessarily brass band. Let's take a choral composer. They, they get hooked into writing just choral music. But actually, if that's all they write, then they're not going to expand their, um, their language and their style in a way in which they would if they were writing for chamber music or orchestras or, or say, wind bands or whatever. So I think, I think I would say to any young composer, don't, don't simply put all your creative efforts into one genre. Try to expand as much as you can, because in the end, that will creatively be more of a spur to your future. We're living in this strange period at the moment during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it is very sad and worrying for all those affected in one way or the other. But it does feel like the arts and the performing arts are, are more important than ever, whether they're just giving people some light relief or perhaps something a bit more profound. From a British bandsman perspective, I've been hearing over the past few weeks about various composition competitions which are taking place, encouraging people to write and submit their pieces. Out of this sad and, and really quite uncertain time, is there a glimmer of hope to be had from harnessing that creativity and hopefully seeing new works and new voices rising to the fore? Well, I think there's always a glimmer of hope and I think all of us uh, certainly have the view that, that this hopefully is, t is temporary, that actually we will return to, a, to a, a life which is rich in every way and culture is as important in my opinion to people's individual lives um, as, as is economics, for example. Economics are more important. No one wants to lose a job and there's some terrible predictions about how many people are going to be unemployed. It's, it's really very, very worrying. But in the end, all of us as human beings need something beyond, as it were, our daily life. And so getting back to an earlier point, why is it that, that people in brass bands are so committed to, to what they do. It's because it actually takes them out of their ordinary worlds and puts them into a different world of experience which enhances them as human beings. So, yeah, I think that all the initiatives that are coming out at the moment, whether it be brass players that are doing these, uh, and indeed orchestral players that are doing these multi-platform uh, things in on the internet, performing new works and everything else, and I didn't know about the composers' competitions, but yeah, absolutely. It's terribly important to keep that kind of creative drive going um, so that actually when we do get out of all of this, as you say, maybe you know, we'll be the richer for it. I hope so. And as we approach the final stages of this chat today, we saw the release earlier in 2020 of a terrific new symphonic brass album of your music, Music of the Angels, performed by London Brass on the Shandos label. What's next for you? What's occupying your creative thoughts at this time? Well, yes, thank you for that, Mark. And also, you wrote a very, very nice review of that uh, CD, which I was, I was very, very grateful for, of course. It is a, it's a fantastic CD. Um, not, not talking about the music at all for a moment, but just, just the sheer thrill of hearing the quality of 18 of the best professional brass players in the UK um, is just a sonic experience that no one should miss. So yeah, it, that, was, that was great. That was great doing that. And, and it, was a, it was the culmination of something that I've been trying to kind of think of for quite a number of years. Yeah, in the immediate future, actually, I'm, I'm currently, although again, it's been unfortunately postponed with the, uh, the COVID-19, 
um, I'm doing three CDs of my music for on the Naxos label. Um, the first one, fortunately, we did get in the can, uh, and that's uh, my solo piano music with a, a marvellous pianist called Murray McLaughlin. That will be out on the Naxos label in August, so there's a little plug if any listeners want to look out for that. There, is, there are two more on, on, on the stocks, one of my string quartets um, and another of my instrumental music. And, but those, as I said, have had to be postponed till at least the end of the year, if not beyond. So I, that's very unfortunate. And then, of course, you know, obviously, as we return to an earlier uh, uh, point of discussion, um, just, just next year hearing the world rejoicing at last. That's it for this episode of BB On The Record. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can enjoy a digital subscription of British Bandsmen. It costs just £42.99 for one year. Go to BritishBandsmen.com and click on subscribe. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now.